And we are live from the Empire of Lies. This is going to be a tough one, Rod. I don't know if I can pull it off. But leading you on a journalistic archaeological dig for stories that the mainstream media buries. See, there's a lot to say. This is a show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. A bastion of free speech, open debate, and intellectual diversity. This is the backstory. You know, after you've had a stroke, just saying the word archaeological is somewhat difficult, Rod. It's a challenge. I'll be honest. I don't know why I give myself those challenges, but I do. But we had a great show you put together for us today, Rod. We're looking at the great Scott Ritter in the first hour, correct? Correct. And there's a lot of stuff going on in Ukraine that we need to discuss militarily. The media is making it out like there's a big Ukrainian victory in Kherson. Have you seen that? Yeah, I did see a few of those stories, Lee, but uh, as, we, as we talked about with uh, Sandra yesterday, it's, it's not what they're saying. Right. And it might not even be, you know, it's a propaganda war. And what we know is the Ukrainians have no compunctions about flat out lying about how they're doing, about how the Russians are doing. And in a way that I don't see Russia do. Do, do you agree with that? Oh yeah, for sure. Ukraine's on a, a whole other level of lying or, or you know, propagating propagating uh, disinformation. Yeah, wh- what I'm saying is, Ukraine, we don't need to be perfect. This is not what Rod and I want from you. Right, Rod? We're not asking them to be perfect and never lie. It's war. And we understand they're going to say some stuff that's overly optimistic or about the, the enemy that's pessimistic. Right? We get that. Right, Rod? Yeah, Lee, they don't have to, you know, Russia's not making up fake rape allegations on Ukraine's military, you know what I'm saying? Right, especially when there are things that don't work out for you in the long run. These lies, and we'll be talking about this with our second hour guest host, Carter Laren. I'm glad Carter's going to be on, because first off, I love having him on. But second off, I want to have a philosophical talk about the idea of You see, like with Ukraine, I don't expect perfection from people. I don't expect that people will never lie. Do you know what I mean, Rod? People lie. I I, I understand that. And I don't get freaked out about that, about someone lying occasionally about some topics. It's the level. That makes sense. It's the level. Right? What's that, Rod? I would say it's the level of lying. Like, if you tell a little lie, like, hey, you know, I didn't eat your cookies, you know, that might not get you upset, but the lies that are coming out of Ukraine are over the top. Yes, and the lies that come out of this administration. For instance, I was wrong yesterday. I thought the GDP numbers had come out, but what I read was a report that accurately predicted the GDP numbers. Because before the GDP numbers come out, it's an open secret around town. Does that make sense? And so the official numbers came out today, and lo and behold, yes, the GDP suffered a second quarter 
of losses. So what is that? And don't say the R word, Rod. Um, that's just a bad economy by the Biden administration. Well, so I can't, I'm seeing, I can't say the R word. What I'm seeing the, the press do on this story is they're saying the U.S. is inching closer to a recession. What? Inching closer? That's like saying Francisco Franco is inching closer to death in Spain. You know, that's a Sunday Live reference. But, you know, or, or Michael Jackson is inching closer to death. Michael Jackson is dead. Right? Dead. Dead. Bereft of life, he rests in peace. That's what he is. He's dead. He's not inching closer to death. We are not inching closer to recession. Right, Rod? Yeah, we we are over the line. We're way over the line. We're, we're, we're there. We're looking back at our old economy. We are in a recessive economy now. And I, I'm going to repeat that I understand telling that lie. If you've got a, a person who's an idiot, who doesn't know anything about economics, maybe they're not an idiot, but it's just not anything they care about or studied. If you have somebody, I'm not picking on plumbers, but who's a plumber, and that's what they do for a living, and they haven't studied economics. If you ask them what a recession is, they might not know. Does that make sense? A plumber doesn't need to know what the definition of a recession is. Does that make sense? Correct. But the people who the Biden administration is lying to all know what a recession is. They're people who analyze those numbers, and they're not being fooled at all. Telling the plumber, no, there's no such thing as a wrench. No such thing. It doesn't exist. It's not going to go over with a plumber because he knows that a wrench is a common tool. And in the same way, telling people who do finance, like investors and whatnot, that a recession is not two straight quarters of downturn in the GDP is trying to tell a plumber there's no such thing as a wrench. It's foolish. And it's foolish because of the person, who is the Biden administration trying to fool? Maybe he's, maybe the random crack whore that Hunter Biden knows. You know, the woman with the face tattoo. Do you know what I'm talking about, Rod? There's so many of them, Lee, uh, but I'm guessing this isn't the one that was cost $10,000, right? Right, the, the $10,000 brunette there's a lot of pictures of her she seems to like taking pictures of herself have you noticed that well yeah i mean she's uh, right before she gets the you know the uh the transfer she's just like hey this is me before i got the ten thousand. this is me after the, the ten thousand. you know what i mean and let me say this i don't like dehumanizing this this woman this sex worker i do not like dehumanizing her i wish i knew her name and possibly her phone number. But I wish I knew her name because I do not like calling her that crack whore with the face tattoo. However, it's a perfectly accurate description. And Rod, think about what point we're at in history when a perfectly accurate description of someone who's a known, shall we say, friend of the president's son it can be best described as the crack whore with the face tattoo. That never comes up in Russia. You never hear about Putin 
and crack horse with face tattoos. Zelensky, possibly, but only by extension. Do you think that's, do you see my point, Rod? We're at a weird point in history, but in the news, it's accurate to talk about crack horse with face tattoos. Oh no, it's it's very uh, it's very accurately, and it's uh it shows the times we are in here in America, and uh, shows how, how far we've declined and fell. Now let's talk about the, we haven't talked about who's on the second hour. Any seven Canada, right? Adam Seuss from the Rebel will be joining us. Who's joined us before from Canada, and he's talking about all kinds of stuff going on there, including why the Pope is there, and he's there on a, on an apology tour to Native Americans. But I talked about that yesterday. The Pope does say something they should not only apologize for, but I don't think, I'll put it like this. Have you known anyone, I've known several people, friends of mine who were sexually assaulted. Not one of them were focused on an apology. They, if they were sexually assaulted by someone raped, they wanted punishment or compensation. Does that make sense, Rod? They didn't want an apology. Oops, sorry. Oops, sorry about that time you were a child and I raped you repeatedly. Oops. Does that sound like the Pope's doing enough on that? Uh, uh, no, Lee, it, it, it's not. And, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people were angered that uh, he put that, a, um, that Indian garb on his head as kind of like a uh, pandering, you know what I mean? Well, you must admit, Indian headsets look good on all kinds of people, including 20-year-old girls at Coachella. Every time you see them at a concert wearing a headdress, I know it's culturally inappropriate, but still, it looks pretty good. Have you seen it? Have you ever seen it look bad, Rod? Actually Um. bad. For like a Halloween or something like that festive, yeah. But if you're coming to apologize for uh, wrongs that have been done years ago by uh, the Catholic Church in Canada or that diocese over in Canada, um, I don't think it's uh, appropriate to be. Uh, it's kind of Justin Trudeau-ish, Trudeau-ish. You know what I mean? That, that, that level of pandering. He went featherface. You're saying. So the the Pope is simultaneously underplaying it and overplaying what happened years ago. And we'll talk to Adam Seuss about that. And the great Carter Laren is our guest host in the second hour. And I think that covers it, aside from taking your calls. 202-521-1320. Rod, take us out with the name of the show, To The Boom. You're listening to the best show on the radio, The Backstory. Now, in the intro, I use journalistic archaeologists because a lot of times what we do is we carry stories in a normal world where the media was doing what you think it's doing, which is the news media, therefore cover the news. If you thought they were trying to get the truth of the news, every day they would be talking about apparently Joe Biden. And have you seen there's more evidence that Joe Biden was the big guy. It's all, it's like 99% now, Lee, that, you know, Joe Biden's the big guy. I don't think uh, whoever's still holding on to that 1%, like, oh, maybe it's not, is, you know, 
it's probably his, his voters, I guess. Well, and the reason why is a, is a man named James Gillier. He's a British attorney. And he was one of Hunter Biden's business partners. Have you heard of him? James Gillier. He's the guy. Yeah, I've, I've heard his name many times from different people. I think uh, Bobolinsky uh, also said his name as well. Bobolinsky, he's important in Bobolinsky's story. So his his name is all over emails that are on the Hunter Biden laptop, including the one that was talking about 10% to the big guy. Tell H, we, we assume that's Hunter, right? Tell H that 10% to the big guy. That was an email sent by James Gillier to Tony Bobolinsky. And what what's clear is it's not an accusation by Tony Bobolinsky. Do you see what I'm saying? He's not the guy who sent the email, but this guy Gillier is, right? So Gillier has not gone, Bobolinsky went public and you're saying, well, he's, let's say, a self-serving secret Trump supporter. That's why he's saying that. He didn't say it. This guy Gillier said it. You follow me, Rod? Right, right. The story's been covered so little, little that a lot of the details get lost on people, even though we're following a story to a good deal. If you've been asked who said the big guy, you might have thought Tony Bobolinsky. I might have said that because he's the name associated with that so much. But Bobolinsky didn't say it. Gillier did. Now, the reason I'm bringing it up now is more emails from the Hunter Biden laptop have come out. And one of them is another email from James Gillier. When the story was starting to get into public, panicked about it. Have you seen that email? It's another email from the guy who sent the first email, James Gillier. Makes sense, Rod? Yeah, it makes sense. And yeah, I did see that email. And in that email, a second email, who did James Gillier refer to as the big guy? Drum roll. That would be our current president. That's right. Joe Biden was referred to in another email by the same guy. So, you know, if I refer to you in one email as our interpret producer, and in a second email I say, our interpret producer got Scott Ritter on the show today. Who am I referring to? You, right? It's obvious. So we know who the big guy is now, 99%. But the media is largely ignoring that. The people who aren't ignoring that are the Post and Tucker Carlson. Why isn't this top story breaking news on the New York Times, the Washington Post, or CNN? Well, you know the answer to that, Rod. But go ahead, say it anyway. Say what we all know. Why doesn't those esteemed journalistic organizations, Washington Post, New York Times, or CNN, why are they never going to get to the bottom of the Biden corruption story? It'll make the Biden and Democrats look bad, so they don't they don't want to touch it. They don't want to touch it. And right. And it leads one to believe that is not their job to cover the news. 
their job is to cover it up. Right? And we saw it yesterday. We talked about Brian Otten. He's the FBI former agent who helped cover up the Hunter Biden laptop story and also vouched for a sealed dossier. I'll say that again. That's an FBI agent who vouched for a sealed dossier. It turned out to be full of lies. Lee, that same that same guy also uh, helped set up the uh, parents at these school board meetings to be investigated by the uh, DOJ and FBI. So he's also involved with that as well. Now explain explain that, Ron. Um, in the testimony today that I told you about, that the uh, National Security Division, the DOJ, was have, uh, I think he's assistant uh, attorney general. Uh, Jim Jordan uh, brought that same guy you were talking about up, and he was say- saying that he's also involved with the uh, investigation into parents who go to school board meetings and complain. And you know that that, that memo that Merrick Garland put out. So it's the same guy. And it it raises a point. It's not that. I don't want a congressional investigation of the events around the election. I do. But this January 6th committee, I understand what its purpose is. It is to set up the indictment of Donald Trump. And I'll talk about that in a second. And to bury the truth. If you saw a congressional committee and you saw two names on the list, Brian Otten and Ray Epps, You'd be thinking, now we're going somewhere, right? Right, Rod? That would be exciting. You'd want to hear from those witnesses, right? Of course. Because there's a story to be told here, but this committee is not telling it. Now, the reason I say that is think about the purpose of this committee. Imagine a world that this committee did not exist in. Imagine a world without the January 6th committee. Okay, can you try to do that, Rod? There's no January 6th committee on TV and in the news every day. Okay? Now imagine Merrick Garland was saying, we're thinking of prosecuting and indicting Donald Trump for his role in January 6th. Without the January 6th committee dog and pony show, That would be shocking, would it not? If there was no January 6th committee and Merrick Garland just started saying now, out of the blue, the DOJ is looking at indicting Donald Trump. Do you see my point? The January 6th committee is the equivalent of a concert of an opening act, right? Or in a play, the first act of a play. The first act is get everyone thinking about, even if they don't, even if they don't agree with it, it's in your head. The January 6th co- committee, they've said insurrection so much that the fact that they haven't proved it, no one has testified. Hey, Donald Trump told me to go attack the Capitol. Has anyone testified to that, Rod? <laughs> no, I haven't. I haven't. Uh, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen or heard that. And the way freedom of speech works is if I say, you know, I was out on the street yesterday protesting Joe Biden. I, I, that means I sit in a chair with my impeached Biden sign. 
and occasionally flash a peace sign when cars honk at me. Because most people up here in South Dakota are in favor of impeaching Joe Biden. I saw no one who's upset at me. But let's say someone saw my sign and then went and tried to overthrow Joe Biden, tried to take over an event of his, let's say. That is not my fault. I did not say, go attack a Biden event. And saying, I think this legit election was illegitimate is legal. It's freedom of speech. And you'd think from the January 6th committee discussions that they focused so much on Donald Trump thought that it was an illegitimate election. They repeated that. You've heard that gazillions. Of, that's an approximate number, Rod. But have you heard that? They, they're talking about that constantly with this January 6th hearing. Till this day, Lee, and every day going past, uh, going forward, they they hammer that in to say that, uh, that you know, President Biden was duly elected and there was nothing wrong with the uh, 2020 election. And if you contrast it with the 2016 election, we had four years of Democrats saying President Trump was not legitimately elected. And like this story, they blame the Russians. By the way, you find it interesting because I, I really do. I think that it's too bad Russia cannot sue for defamation. Do you see what I'm saying? A country can't sue for defamation. But I don't think it's a coincidence that Russiagate was focused on saying Donald Trump's an illegitimate president. They were denying. Did you see the creepy video of Joe Biden? And when I say creepy, with the creepy robot eyes? You must have seen that, Rod. Yeah, he must be on some great drugs, Lee, because any other time he can barely keep his eyes open. He looks like Mr. Magoo, but in this video, I mean, <laughs> like he's got lasers pointed at you through his eyes. It is noticeably creepy, and, and you know exactly what video I meant when I brought it up, because once you've seen this video, you can't unsee it. You'll see it in your nightmares. So I tell you, look for that video. If you just type in Joe Biden creepy eyes, it should show up. I would say that would find it, wouldn't you, Rod? Correctly, correct. But aside from his creepy eyes, what he was saying was creepy. He was saying, "You, if you believe in insurrection, you don't believe in democracy." And you saw the content of his of his creepy eyes speech. He's telling you, you can't be pro American. You can't be pro American. And, no, by the way. Mr. President Creepy Eyes, note to you, no one's in favor. Rod, are you in favor of insurrection? No, not at all. Is your argument that you're in favor of what happened in January 6th because you're in favor of insurrection? Have you heard anyone say that, Rod? No, I was in favor of the protest. You know, people voices being uh, heard, you know, uh, it was peaceful up until a point. So I was in favor of that. But after that, no. And what they're trying to do is to equate the fact to make it seem illegal to question that the election, if you question an election's legitimacy, if you have any questions, any questions, 
And whether you're saying the votes were messed with, you can't trust machines, you don't like Dominion, or Hunter Biden's laptop was found with damning evidence about the president and corruption. You can't voice any criticism, apparently. Is that the message? I'm picking up that message, Rod, loud and clear. Is that the message? Are you putting, picking up what they're laying down in the Biden administration? Don't question elections if we win. Is that the message? Oh, oh yeah, 100%. Uh, and also don't question what a recession is now. Uh, you, I mean, Biden administration flat out telling you, you know, whatever you thought a recession is before yesterday, that's not what it is. And uh, just to... Uh, go and coincide what you're saying. You know, we still have that clip of uh, Matt Gates questioning this uh, uh, deputy attorney general. Well, let's let's run that clip right now. But uh, uh, the only thing the Biden administration says you can question is what a woman is, what the definition of a woman. Feel free to question that, but not elections or what the definition, according to the new Biden math, a recession is. Let's play Matt Gates. The representative from Florida hit it. I yield to my friend from Florida, Mr. Gates. Is Hunter Biden a national security threat? That's not a question that would come up before me, uh, Congressman. You're the head of the National Security Division, so it seems sort of on the nose. It's not in my practice or experience to identify individuals and and to label any individual, an American citizen or any individual, as a national security threat. Well, you would certainly concede that if the adult offspring of the President of the United States or the Vice President were compromised, that would be a national security threat, right? We speak through our filings in court, uh, and we speak through our actions in in, in open court. Um, so I would, okay, well, how, I would speak to this. Where's the in, laptop? In that position. Do you know where Hunter Biden's laptop is? Again, I'm not going to talk about any potential well, ongoing you investigation know where it is? as I sit do here. you know where it is? I'm not going to talk about any ongoing you, you, investigation. You come here and you tell I us you follow here. the facts and the law, but you can't even follow a laptop that you guys have had for three years. We follow the facts and the law, and we speak in open court about our yeah, cases. but you aren't speaking about this, but you know who is speaking about it? The whistleblowers from the FBI who've gone to, to Senator Grassley and said that you guys purposefully take any information that is, that is derogatory about Hunter Biden, and you go and rat hole it so that you never have to speak about it in any circumstance. But the good news is you're not the only ones with that laptop. So Patrick Ho was convicted of bribing government officials in Africa, and he gave a million bucks to Hunter Biden. Are you familiar with that? I'm not going to speak about any ongoing investigation. I is can, that an ongoing, I can assure is that you that an ongoing investigation? I can, I'm not, going to, Patrick I'm not going to speak about any potential ongoing investigation. Don't you investigation. see that that degrades the country's like belief in you guys when you have whistleblowers saying that you're purposefully rat-holing this information, and then you come here and say you won't talk about it? I mean, you know, inside Hunter Biden's multi-million dollar deals with a Chinese energy company, Washington Post, Matt Vizier, Chinese elite paid $31 million to Hunter and the Bidens, Peter Schweitzer in the New York Post. Hunter Biden's business partner called Joe Biden the big guy in panic messages. Do you guys call Joe Biden the big guy at the Department of Justice? So I think it's important to understand why we don't speak about cases outside of the courtroom. But, but, by, we, the we way, that, by the way, the, we, we I that, already if know I may, why. Sir, if I may you know, answer the you question. Know, you know why you don't speak about it? Because it's about Hunter Biden. You guys have no problem leaking about other stuff, right? Yeah. Like, you got no problem going out and tagging parents at school board meetings as a national security threat. But when all of the facts and all of the law are before you regarding the corruption of Hunter Biden, you don't want to speak to that at all. And it's precisely why you've got folks that are talking to Senator Grassley about 
about it. Well, newsflash, America, and we're going to go to a short break after this and be joined by the great Scott Ritter. But newsflash, America, we're in a crisis. We're in a constitutional crisis right now where you have law enforcement parts of the government, law enforcement agencies being used for political purposes, partisan political purposes, and to bury a story about presidential corruption. It's not coming. It's here right now. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by the great Scott Ritter on The Backstory. Back on the backstory and on the radio, 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joining us now is a great friend of the show, the esteemed Scott Ritter. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Doing great, thanks. How are you? Doing fine. So let's talk about what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. Because I'm seeing reports in the American mainstream media about Kherson and about a bridge being destroyed that they say the media is making it out, the the Western media, like the Russians can't resupply their troops west of the river anymore. Is this the truth? What's going on in Kherson, what, from what you're saying, Scott? No, I mean, uh, the, the Ukrainians have made it a priority to target this specific bridge, um, and they've been targeting it for some time now. Uh, and they're hitting the bridge. Uh, it's an old Stalin-era bridge um, <laughs> made with whatever steel they use. We need to find it because it's, uh, it's pretty solid. They punched some holes in the surface, uh, which are going to need to be patched. Right now, um, you know, uh, pedestrians are able to cross and single vehicles are able to cross, but no heavy vehicles. Uh, but the point is this bridge was never used for the Russian logistics. Um, you know, the Russians are pretty smart. Uh, they know how to fight a war, and they understand the necessity for, um, you know, Lines of communication that aren't, um, you know, don't have a bottleneck. Uh, so I would fire any general that said, yep, hey, my uh, my sole means of resupplying all my troops west of the river is this one bridge here that's just sticking out like a sore thumb. Uh, they have pontoon bridges. Uh, they have other bridges. Uh, they have multiple lines of communication, multiple um, means of, uh, of bringing material in. They've spread load their... Uh, their depots. Uh, there's nothing predictable about this. But the the biggest proof positive. Just go to the battlefield. Uh, the Russians aren't running out of ammunition. <laughs> just ask the Ukrainians who are getting the dog poop pounded out of them every hour. Um, there's no stalling the Russian attack. There's no stalling uh, the death and destruction they're dealing to the Ukrainians. This is just again part and parcel of an overall propaganda effort by the Ukrainians to create an image of resistance that fosters willingness on the part of uh, governments in the West to continue supplying them with arms and munitions. If the Ukrainians ever told the full truth about what's happening in eastern Ukraine, um, people would recognize that this war is lost. It's been lost for some time now. There's no chance of reversing the the tide of battle. And uh, maybe people would stop pouring tens of billions of dollars down, you know, a, a drain. 
and there have been poll numbers, even in West, Western media's biased polls, showing that 65% of people think Russia is going to win the conflict, even with the thick cloud of propaganda that surrounds this war. American people don't seem to be buying it. Have you noticed that, Scott? Uh, what purpose is the propaganda serving? Who's it fooling at this point? Well, the propaganda is, is I mean, clearly it's not fooling the American public, but the American public, frankly speaking, has been disengaged from this issue. Uh, you know, if, if people watch it on the news, uh, people will put a Ukrainian flag on their uh, social media posts, et cetera. But, you know, this, this isn't an issue that resonates. Um, you don't see the American people out in the streets every day parading on behalf of the Ukrainian people. Um, you know, this, this is this is a sideshow. This is, uh, you know, like, you know, it's, it's like baseball season. You just turn on the TV, you realize there's a couple of baseball games going on. Let's find out what's going on. But it's not a big deal for the American public. It's a big deal for Americans, however, who have sold this conflict to the American people as a necessary conflict that we must stand up to Russia and that, uh, you know, Ukraine is going to win. We've been told from day one, Ukraine is going to win this thing. Ukraine is going to win this thing. That's why we're giving them tens of billions of dollars. Uh, we're, you know, American politicians are loath to admit mistakes to begin with under any circumstance. Uh, there's an old saying in the military, uh, at least I was told by my general when I was standing in front of his desk, when you're explaining, you're losing. It doesn't matter if you're right. The fact that you have to explain something means you've lost already. American politicians don't want to have to explain to the American public why they were so wrong on everything about Russia and the Ukraine conflict, especially in the lead up to the midterm elections. So we're going to see this huge propaganda effort uh, going forward now for the next weeks and months in an effort to create a smokescreen about what's really going on on the ground. But the problem is, at some point in time, it just becomes so obvious that the Ukrainians are losing and losing big that no amount of propaganda is going to be able to uh, to cover that up. And I, I think we're seeing that already. Uh, you know, mainstream media is starting to, to, to come to grips with the fact that there's something dreadfully wrong going on in eastern Ukraine. Wrong meaning the Ukrainians aren't winning this and they're not going to win it. Now, and, and this goes back to something I hinted at in the question. Who is being fooled by this? On the official side, don't you Ukrainians know, does Zelensky know he's losing? There's no way Zelensky thinks he's winning, correct? There's no way anybody thinks Ukraine's winning. Nobody thinks Ukraine's winning. So I see these increasingly desperate, and I'll put the Vogue shoot with his wife. This is their new way of getting weapons. We will know when she does a penthouse shoot that things are really bad. When it's Zelensky's wife in penthouse form, dear dear penthouse, send me weapons. Thank you. When that becomes their PR campaign, we'll know they're really desperate. But I'd say there are the readers of Vogue. Do they have a lot of weapons? I was not aware that was a demographic that possessed weapons. But when is the point going to come when Zelensky? And the government of Ukraine begging for weapons becomes something that angers people. They, they don't want to hear it anymore. Are the Western leaders to that point yet, Scott? Western leaders will never be at that point, uh, especially the ones who um, 
invested so much political capital up front into selling this Ukrainian fantasy to their respective populations. Um, so you're, you're, they can't afford to back away. No, no politician has the courage to say, I was wrong. What's happening, though, in Europe right now, and also in the United States, I, you know, apparently we're in a recession, but you know, nobody's talking about it. Um, the, in Europe, you know, their economy is on the verge of collapsing because of the idiotic policies that their leaders have enacted um, to punish Russia for the crime of going to war against Ukraine when Ukraine was working with NATO uh, with hostile intent towards Russia. I mean, you know, this is a, a fire set by NATO. Um, you know, they're the arsonists, but nobody wants to acknowledge that. But the population in Europe is starting to wake up. You know, people suddenly become very wise about things when they're hungry, when they're cold, when they're unemployed, when they can't take vacations, when basically their world is collapsing around them. But they suddenly have the time to ask the question, why is this happening? And there's a growing recognition that it's happening because of the idiotic policies of their elected officials. And these elected officials are going to start to topple. We're seeing that. Boris Johnson, Mario Draghi, and others. You're going to see throughout the fall and into the winter, one by one by one, all the idiots that signed up for this American policy of sanctioning Russia to death are going to lose their jobs. And when that happens, um, you're going to get a new batch of politicians who will be responsive to the needs of the people, which means they're going to bring to an end these suicidal policies uh, that Russia to the detriment of the European economy. Well, and I'm optimistic that that will happen, but I have not seen, I've seen the idiots, but I haven't seen the people stepping up to replace them. And it was so easy to replace them. Uh, the closest we're coming is people like Matt Gates speaking out about some issues or people like Marjorie Taylor Greene. But the people who are the politicians who are speaking the most truth on these issues are being attacked by the media every day. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a, a laughingstock. But when I listen to what she says, she says a lot of smart stuff. Are you seeing what I'm saying, Scott, that the truth tellers are the objects of attacks by the media and politicians? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the reality is, the, you know, the thing that made the potential of American democracy, as opposed to the reality, uh, so great was the, the premise that we were a nation of people uh, who sought to be informed citizens about the issues that were pertinent to their lives um, and that they would engage in fact-based debate, dialogue, and discussion of a civil nature uh, to, you know, to decide collectively how they want to proceed. And this would be done in a democratic fashion, um, usually through, uh, you know, legislators uh, that were elected by the people uh, to act in their name. Um, if this was the case, I think we'd be <laughs> truly the greatest nation in the history of the world. But that's not what's happening. We, we allow special interests to buy these elections. We elect politicians who are not the representatives of the people, uh, but rather the, um, the shills of special interest, and the people are silenced. Look, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and, and, and say that Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene are the greatest thing in the world. It doesn't matter what I think. I'm not their constituents. But unlike the vast majority of members of Congress, these two 
elected officials represent the will of their respective constituencies. When they speak, it's the voice of their uh, of the office. They represent their uh, their 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 districts very well, very strongly. And this is why, uh, even though they're being attacked and smeared, etc., they're going to continue to be reelected because. They aren't playing the game. Um, And more and more, uh, because they continue to survive, uh, their voices can't be ignored. I mean, you know, everybody right now is talking about, you know, Matt Gaetz, um, you know, know, and and the questioning is done. In the past, people would have been dismissive, tried to divert attention away uh, to personal behavior and things like that. But, you know, when he asked the question, even people who aren't fans of Matt Gaetz are going, that's a pretty good question. I like that question. Yeah, right. What this guy's thinking? Um, you know, and the same thing with Marjorie Taylor Greene. When, when we finish playing the political game of smearing her and actually listen to the point she's trying to make, you know, and one of the problems with both Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene in the Washington, D.C. arena is they speak like you and me. They speak like the people. Uh, they aren't playing word games. They're not trying to be clever. They're just going straight for the throat. And, um, I think people are starting to wake up to this, that, hey, we need more attack dogs of this nature, more people that aren't willing to compromise uh, to appease Chuck Schumer or appease Mitch McConnell. People that say, I'm here to represent my electorate. They are concerned about an issue. So I'm asking questions. Well, or appease Vladimir Zelensky, because you saw the government of Ukraine has a list of people who they say you can't trust journalistically, a blacklist that the government has. And on that list are people like Tulsi Gabbard and Rand Paul, right, and Glenn Greenwald. You've seen that list. The government of Ukraine is saying these are bad people to listen to. Did you see that list, Scott? I'm on the list. Of course you are. Uh, yeah, and, and no, I've not just seen the list, but I've taken action. Um, you know, I don't really care about the Ukrainian government. Frankly speaking, in a couple of months, they'll all be dead or in prison or have fled the country. Uh, so their, you know, their life expectancy is short. Their viability is no. Um, I don't care about them. What I do care about is that the United States Congress uh, passed a law, Public Law um, 117-128, uh, which is the um, it, it, it's, it's assistance to Ukraine. It was uh, passed by Congress on May 21st. It authorizes $8.7 billion uh, to fund various uh, domestic contingencies in Ukraine to include paying the salaries of every civil servant in the Ukrainian government. Now, why is this an issue? Because that list was put together by civil servants in the employ of something called the Center for uh, Disinformation Analysis or something of that nature. Um, U.S. taxpayer dollars are underwriting the work done to prepare that list. And, you know, the last time I looked at the Constitution of the United States, the First Amendment prohibits Congress from enacting laws that abridge the free speech protections of the United States. Now, I can guarantee you that that list wouldn't have been made if it weren't for U.S. taxpayer dollars. So the U.S. Congress has passed a law that seeks to go around restrictions about it directly imposing restrictions by using a proxy, the Ukrainian government, to do the same thing. No, that doesn't float. You don't use U.S. taxpayer dollars 
to silence American citizens from exercising their First Amendment rights to speak. This is fundamentally wrong. And um, I, you know, I don't know who Chuck Schumer and uh, Christine Gillibrand and Paul Tonka, those are my representatives, think they're fooling around with. But I'm an American actually took an oath to uphold and defend the United States Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I put on a uniform, and I was willing to give my life for that. So I'm willing to take these idiots on because, you know, it was all enemies, foreign and domestic. And if you're an elected representative passing a law that infringes on the constitutional protected rights of free speech of any American citizen, then you're an enemy of America. So I'm going to war against these guys. Not physical. I'm not threatening physical violence. But um, no, this this is not a line they get to cross. They don't get to sit back and chuckle and say, oh, the Ukrainians got them. They called them Russian propagandists. And you know this, Lee. If you're called a Russian propagandist, that A is a chilling effect on your employability. It makes it very difficult if you're a writer to get pieces published in, you know, in, in normal channels that would normally publish you. They won't now because you've been labeled a Russian propagandist. Um, and the other thing is you're literally one click away from going from a blacklist to a kill list. We're dealing with Ukrainian government, Nazis, murderers rapists who have already published black lists of this nature. Uh, people who have appeared on this list have been murdered by the Ukrainians or Ukrainian politicians, Ukrainian journalists, Ukrainian activists have been murdered because they've been placed on a black list by their government. Right now, there's a British journalist who's fearing for his life because he's been placed on a hit list, a kill list by the Ukrainian government because he dares say things that run against the narrative they're trying to promulgate. And so, you know, here's the United States Congress. Are you really telling me you're trying to facilitate the murder of American citizens by allowing the Ukrainian government to create a, bl a blacklist at taxpayer expense? This is absurd. All of America should be in an uproar, not because they give a darn about me. They I don't care if they care about me. It's about them. It's about every American citizen. You need to understand that if this can be done against people like Tulsi Gabbard, who continue to serve their country in the uniform of the United States military, it can be done against anybody. Now, Scott, I understand because of the kill list why you're passionate about this. But let me just say you're being a little ungrateful to Vladimir Zelensky. Let me make my case. In a sense, didn't he do everyone who wants the truth a favor and put together a list, whatever he calls it, if he, if he calls it a list of journalists you should not read, I'd say that list is exactly a list of journalists you should read. In fact, go down the list and make sure you're subscribed to everyone on that list. Do you, do you agree that in a weird way they put together a list of who you should pay attention to? No, I, I, no, I don't disagree that they've done the world a favor by, uh, you know, <laughs> grouping in one location uh, names of people who obviously should be read. Um, but again, uh, you know, I, I know I know the point you're trying to make, and I'll make sure I send Zelensky a thank you note. Yeah, I'm, it's just a joke, obviously, Scott, but... I know, but the, uh, but the you know, the, the, the reality is um, I've been, I mean, I've got rejection letters from uh, major uh, publishing organizations that have published me in the past, and they've rejected me because they say that you know, they can't publish somebody who's considered to be, you know, pro-Russian or a Russian propagandist. Now, you know, the, the reason why the Ukrainians label me a Russian propagandist, they, they conveniently put that down in their list. 
Uh, one, I, I dare say that um, Ukraine was uh, serving as a base of NATO. Well, newsflash, Ukraine, when you allow the United States and NATO military organizations to create permanent bases on your soil for the purpose of training your forces so they can go east and kill Russians, you are a base of NATO. Um, sorry, that ain't propaganda. It's the truth. The other thing they got upset about was me calling uh, the Ukraine-Russian war a proxy war between Russia and NATO. Wow. You know who else said that? The noted Russophobe, Russian hater, Max Boot, in a recent uh, op-ed piece published in the Washington Post. Um, but, you know, who else has said that? <laughs> the Secretary of Defense. And just about every American official has acknowledged that this conflict, the po American policy in this conflict, is to help the Ukrainians inflict pain on the Russians. That is the definition of a proxy conflict. That ain't propaganda, Ukraine. That's the truth. And then, they, of course, they got mad because I said the Bucha massacre was done by Ukrainian security services. I continue to say the facts back me up, and I'll debate that with any Ukrainian official anywhere they want. I'll, hell, I'll even go to Ukraine, and I'll debate them on Ukrainian TV. It might be a one-way ticket, but it'd be sort of fun to do. Yes, and by the way, Ukrainian officials, just note that we will host that debate on this very show. If you want to platform on Sputnik, and remember, Sergei Leschenko has appeared with me. So he's appeared on Sputnik, and he's astrosaurus about him. They're pals. But, Scott, uh, now that this is going so well, the Ukrainian war is going so well for the U.S., of course, we seem to be whipping up another front with China. Now, the Nancy Pelosi trip to China has proven less popular with the Chinese. I'm not going to say than anyone would have predicted. I think they knew what they were doing with this propagation. Do you agree that the United States absolutely knew that this would provoke China and that their goal is to provoke China? And how do you view China as part of this new, I want to say Cold War strategy? It's now a hot war strategy. Where do you see the new provocation with China fitting into everything we're seeing around the world? Well, first of all, again, we're, we're, remember, the United States is literally amateur hour. It's not as though we have uh, reasoned professionals at the helm of our foreign policy. Yep. Uh, we have idiots who are going to run us aground at every opportunity possible. Uh, right now, you know, we, 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 we have a long history with China about Taiwan. We understand what the one China policy is. We understand what China's red lines are. But because America is in retrograde globally, uh, we are desperately looking for ways to assert our authority. That sounds like Cartman um, in, in South Park, but, you know, you got to respect my authority. But, um, you know, in all seriousness, we've, we've resurrected some, uh, some Cold War era tropes now, and, and we're seeking to uh, promote notions of democracy and independence in Taiwan. Uh, the Chinese have said, we're not, you know, we're not playing that game. Um, and, the, you know, this year they've done some unprecedented things. They've called Jake Sullivan. They've called... Uh, Tony Blinken. They've called uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, their counterparts, and they told him straight up, shut up, stop talking about China. Every word you says puts you deeper in the hole. You guys need to understand we're going to war with you if you do this. The Chinese ambassador to the United States gave an interview to NPR back in January. He said, hey, if America keeps acting this way, there's going to be a war between China and, 
in the United States. They've never talked this way before, and now they've made it clear. If Nancy Pelosi's plane tries to land in Taiwan, it won't. It won't land. They'll either force it down or they'll shoot it down, which means there's going to be a dogfight between Chinese and American aircraft. You know who's not bluffing here? China's not bluffing. You know who realizes that? Bill Clinton and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They've both been trying to tell Pelosi to stand down. But because she's the Speaker of the House, number two in line succession, uh, you know they can't tell her what to do. Yeah, you can, Mr. President. Shut the airplane down. She don't own any airplanes. She can't get on a plane if, it, if you won't allow it to take off the ground. Tell the military you will not fly Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. And if she tries to get on a commercial airliner, assert your executive authority. Stop a war before it happens, because I can guarantee you that if Nancy Pelosi attempts to fly to Taiwan, there will be a war between the United States and China. And I can also pretty much guarantee that we will lose that war. And uh, people should also watch out that Nancy Pelosi's drunk husband is taking flying lessons. He plans to fly her drunk over there straight from a wine party in Marin. That's a fake news headline, by the way. That's Russian disinformation, Scott. But uh, as long as he's picking stocks in the process, that then we're OK. Yes. Now, how do you view? I've also changed trying to say something recently. They're saying, stop talking about us as an adversary. We don't see ourselves as an adversary to the United States. Yet, if, and I think Tucker Carlson is by and large great on Fox News, but Tucker is awful when it comes to China. And even Fox News and a lot of Republicans talk about China as an adversary. How do you see that relationship with China, Scott Ritter? I mean, it, it is an adversarial relationship on the part of the United States. China does not seek military confrontation with the West. China wants to compete with the West on the global market. Uh, and, you know, uh, economic competition is healthy. And China wants to engage in healthy economic competition. We don't because we recognize that China actually, uh, in many cases, is uh, the better performer. Um, give you an example. China, since 2010, has spent about $7 trillion investing in global infrastructure. Uh, that means that the Chinese footprint is around the world in a way that the American footprint no longer is. Uh, the best we could do is try to talk the G7 into um, you know, ponying up uh, $600 billion um, to, to come up with some means of competing against the Chinese uh, they have a 10-year, $7 trillion advantage uh, head start, and we're going to come up with $600 billion. But wait a minute, not really. Only $200 billion of that is government funds. The rest of it, we're hoping we can lure some big businesses in to have a joint endeavor with us. This isn't even ever going to start. It's not going to get off the ground. We're not a serious nation. That's the problem. Unfortunately, we're out of time. It's the top of the hour, and we got to take a short break. But fantastic conversation information and appearance as usual. Thank you, Scott Ritter. When we come back for a short break, more on the backstory and with guest co-host Carter Laren talking about epistemology and how it fits in to the current world situation. Getting philosophical with Carter Laren next on the backstory.
We are back live from the Empire of Lies. It's time for the second hour of the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines. I'm investigative journalist Lee Stranahan, and this is the backstory. You know, we've had video backup on the show, Rod. I put the video feed, I got that going with Command Central, and I posted a video feed early in the week, and we've had the video. Have you seen that, Rod? Yeah, you got a, a nice uh, collection of Komodos. Yes. They're ex- actually, they're Cuban shirts, these ones, but I do have a kimono collection, but that's a separate wardrobe. And I'll get to those, trust me. Th- these Cuban shirts are great because they have so many pockets, and I have a place I can put my glasses and Kleenex or whatever I need. But the thing I was going to mention about the video feed is someone commented how grumpy I look. And uh, I can't help it if that's the way I look. This is a face I got. And if I smile like an idiot, I don't think I look that much smarter. Also, have you heard the news? I think I'm far from grumpy. I think I show a lot of pluck, optimism. Do you think I'm grumpy, Rod? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call you grumpy, Lee. But I understand why people think that, but I'm not grumpy. You're realistic. I'm pretty happy overall, but the news is bad. Great appearance with Scott Ritter in the first hour. Scott gets it. And it's frightening that that Ukrainian blacklist. I do think one advantage is get a hold of that list and follow everybody on it and listen to what they say about Ukraine. But the fact that Scott is on that kill list should be dangerous. There's a kill list, there's two lists. He's on the blacklist. That's the official government of Ukraine's list. The kill list is the list of journalists who they want to kill. And I'm not sure Scott's on that. Do you know anything about that, Rod? No, I don't think he's on the kill list, but uh, aren't the two already merging together now? Right. I would say one of them is suggestions for the kill list. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I I would say it's a foreshadow. It's a nomination phase, shall we say. And if if they put like Rand Paul and Tulsi Gabbard on the kill list, I think action needs to be taken by the U.S. against Ukraine. But of course, you know, what we learn is the reason Matt Gates up there saying something is important or Marjorie Taylor Greene, they are going to get attacked. We know that they are going to get attacked, but we need to show the advantage, one advantage we have over the New World Order, over the, the WEF people, is our numbers. There's more of us than there are of them. And some of us have trucks and tractors. So we need to use our numerical superiority and not leave those people out there to do all the work. Marjorie Taylor Greene deserves you tweeting something positive about her every day, simply because she's one of people, she's not perfect, 
but she's, can you name many people as good as Marjorie Taylor Greene, Rod? And try to be critical. Name a politician better than Marjorie Taylor Greene. You see what I'm saying? It's sad, but hard. You, you can't think of people. It's easy to say, because again, I've been critical before, but when she's one of the only people out there fighting the good fight, I would say it's time to defend her and Rand Paul and Glenn Greenwald and all the people who are getting attacked by Ukraine. Coming up this hour, Adam Seuss will be talking about what's going on in Canada. And Carter Lahren as our guest host. Carter, are you there? I am. How are you doing? Good, Carter. Welcome to the show. And thanks for being on again. How are you doing? I'm well. Uh, sounds like I missed a spirited, fun discussion about China. But, uh, well, yeah. let's talk well, about that. I'm not, on the, Carter, I'm not on the kill list, so life's great. Well, Carter, speaking of which, what's the name of the show to take us to the next section of the show? I be- Lee, I believe it's called The Back. Well done bringing the boom, Carter. So what's your opinion of China? Because I think what's clear is we're an era of a lot of propaganda about China from the Democrats and the Republicans. They're both essentially singing the same song. And that makes me distrustful because I know they're wrong on everything else. So a lot of people act as though well, they're wrong about Russia. Everything you say about Russia is a lie, basically. But I'm sure they have it right on China. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I look I mean, at what they. Yeah, go ahead, Gard. Well, look, I think they speak out of both sides of their mouths with China a little bit. I mean, they a lot of them do have financial ties because uh, there's a lot of money that comes from China into the U.S. But they also criticize China, and and I heard Scott Ritter saying that. It's an adversary relationship from the U.S. side, and I think that is true. I don't think I, but I agree with him that China, uh, China's not. They don't want a hot war. Xi Jinping has his Belt and Road Initiative. That's his plan. They can defeat us economically because, uh, you know, we've been committing cultural suicide for decades at this point, and so and and you know I think we've borrowed sixteen trillion dollars in the last few years. So you know that's not or printed. So that's not super sustainable. Uh, and I think people wrongly view China as a communist nation, and I don't think it's communist at all. I think after Mao died, I think Deng Xiaoping came in and said, you know, he explicitly said, uh, we need socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is code for, hey, the cabal of people in charge need to stay in charge, but we need to figure out how to run a better tax farm because communism doesn't work. Uh, and so basically it's just an authoritarian surveillance state which, frankly, I think a lot of the progressives in uh, Western nations are kind of envious of the power that the administrative state in China has, and they would love to have the same kind of power here. So uh, I, I don't think China wants a hot war with us. I think it's it would be stupid to get into a hot war with us, and uh, I don't think they need to, and I think they know that. Well, they put, the, they, they put together their authoritarian state wish list on Amazon, by watching what China's buying. And then they say, when that goes on sale next Prime Day, we'll buy it for the US or the UK. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you can you can see how uh, you can see how a lot of these uh, think tanks 
World Economic Forum being one of them, fawns over some of the, the technical solutions that countries like China have employed for COVID, and they fawn over some of the the loss of liberty we had during the COVID lockdowns, and, and they're very excited about, quote, moving forward and building the, the you know, administrative tyranny uh, that that rivals China's. Now, I'll ask you about a topic we've been talking about before. Do you know much about the ESG investment movement? <laughs> uh, yes, uh, a little bit. Um, I've been I've been yes, following I'm, it. I'm Obviously, not surprised. I think it's vile. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit because I didn't know much about it. I started researching last night. So Elon Musk talked about this, and he said on Twitter that the ESG movement he thinks is the devil incarnate. And that got a lot of attention because he's Elon Musk. But Carter, tell us about ESG investing, what you know about it, and set up the basics. Yeah, sure. Well, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And uh, I guess the best way to describe it is it is a framework for measuring metrics of compliance with progressive goals. Um, there are different different countries have different ESG standards. And so one of the things that the, the think tanks in Europe, like the World Economic Forum, are pushing for is is more standard standardization of ESG. And and but but you have but you have versions of it basically everywhere now and you have it in the US. And it's you know, companies need to start so what it is is it's a way for investors or others that are doing business with a company to score a company on these progressive metrics. So environmental how how well do they uh meet the the standards laid out by environmental activists in terms of what they're doing with their company um social that's just a straight up like do they fly the black lives matter flag and what do they do during pride month and do they love you know uh trans kindergarten teachers you know indoctrinating kids and all like you know are, are they on board with that that's the social stuff um and governance is is basically just uh, kind of transparency. There's a little bit more to that. They, I think it probably includes, uh, ratios between, uh, paychecks of, of, uh, you know, CEOs and, and people lower on a totem pole. It probably includes some other stuff. I'm not totally sure, but what you do is you score a company for this and, and they, they, so they have their kind of ESG reports that they have to start talking about. And you've seen the sec suggest that maybe this should be, now, so you're going to mention that the rating, the ESG rating that they give you is made to look like a credit score. So, you know, when you see a credit score, you have AAA credit or so on. The grading on ESG is looks like a credit score. A company, if they have a great rating, they have a AAA rating. But is for how they measure on environmental social and governance issues. It has nothing to do with yes. credit. But if you notice, they try to put it so it looks like a credit rating, Scott. I mean, I mean, Carter, forgive me. Yeah. If you notice they try yes. to make it look and, like a credit rating. Yeah, and the reason for that is they, uh, they want, this is part of the push for what the World Economic Forum would call the stakeholder capitalism or 
uh, you know, the social economy. Would they want people to be making decisions, uh, investing and purchasing decisions based on something other than uh, financial returns in the product? And they, they want people to be considering this, you know, basically woke score. And the, the big scary thing with it is, like I mentioned, I started to mention the SEC is it has talked now about pushing this. You see a lot of public company, publicly traded companies doing it. And you might think, well, who cares? A couple companies are going to do this, but not everyone is going to do this. But but here's what happens. It the large corporations, especially finance companies. So BlackRock is into this, for example, and I think they're the largest uh, fund. Right. So. They are into this, and in order for them to maintain their ESG score, in order for them to have a good ESG report, they need to uh, they need to demonstrate that they're doing business with other people that have good ESG scores, and so it trickles down. So BlackRock wouldn't want to invest in you if you don't have a good ESG score, so you're not likely to get an investment, and that trickles all the way down to you know if you've got a bakery on a street corner, PayPal might, you know, someday might not want to do business with you or, or your, your other, other banking services or other services you need or vendors might avoid doing business with you if you don't have a good ESG score, because that will affect their ESG score. It's kind of like that episode of Black Mirror, which is where it's like personal social credit, but it's for, but they're doing it through the business world. And, um, there's really not much of a difference other than that one is on the business side and one is personal, but it's a way to kind of push all of this out and to get this ideology spread throughout, uh, throughout the economy. So that's kind of the goal of comes this up, thing. So Ron DeSantis announced yesterday on the Decker Carlson show, Beck's been talking, Glenn Beck has been talking about this for a long time. And, but on the, Tucker Carlson show, Ron DeSantis pointed out legislation that he's putting forward because one of the things that this affects states is big. The states obviously have big pension funds and Ron DeSantis is making it so that pension funds can't give precedence to ESG investment because if the state of New York, for instance, says we're only going to buy ESG companies, that is a huge financial impact, right, Carr? Yes, and that's the idea, right? The idea is to, is this is why you know they're not they're not calling the small businesses and trying to convince them. They're having the conversations with the Black Rocks and the large uh, government controlled pension funds and all of the money at the top because that will trickle down. That will eventually affect everyone. Um, and and you can see it. Here's an I don't I'm not 100 percent sure this is an example, but. Uh, I'm going to use it anyway because I'm 90% sure this is what's going on. If you look at – there's a company called Vista Outdoors. They make most of the ammunition in the United States, and uh, they, they own like Federal and CCI and Remington and a whole bunch of ammunition brands. And But they also own like Camelback and other outdoor brands. Now, you can imagine manufacturing ammunition is not going to get you a good ESG score. It's a no-no. Uh and they've, you know, they've had a good few years. The ammo market's been up. It's been supporting their other, I mean, this last quarter, it supported their other businesses, which contracted slightly, but ammo contributed, I think, to 40% of their growth or something huge. But they've announced now that they're going to divest. They're going to split this into two companies. And I, my wife and I were talking about this and scratching our heads, like, why are they trying to separate into two companies? They're separating ammo from everything else. And the only reason that we can really come up with other than feel good language like maximizing shareholder value is well it it isolates all these out, other outdoor brands from the naughty naughty anti ESG thing 
which is manufacturing ammunition. <laughs> so I I think I again I'm not sure what their reasons are and and but they haven't publicly said. But this is an example. If it is something like this, and if it's not them, someone else will do it. They'll start to divest from things that look bad on their ESG reports because they do have. You go to their front page; they've got an ESG box right on their front page talking about their dedication to ESG, uh, probably because right. there's pressure financially to be doing that. Right, and and the thing that DeSantis's legislation would do is it would reduce some of that pressure because if pension funds can't use that as a factor in deciding whether to invest or not. That makes the whole ASG rating value go down. Does that make sense? No one need who like who cares? You're not forced to comply with ASG. But I know something in researching last night that's interesting. You you talked about it and I understand why you use the term that it's progressive values. Let me point out that when these ratings, these ESG ratings are actually given, it is not, I would say, on the left of the left, the progressive left's values, is on the establishment left, is on yes. what is called neoliberalism, or the, I, I call these the establishment left, the Democrat or the new Labour Party in the UK, their kind of values, where they're not opposed to capitalism. They use capitalism, but a mixed economy. And there's a lot of government involvement. I'll give you an example. The oil companies, you would think big oil would have lousy ESG ratings because they're oil companies. Right, Carter? I mean, that's environmentally uh. bad. Sort of, except for the oil market, it has nothing to do with the free market, and it's highly manipulated by government agencies. So yes, that's uh, ex exactly <laughs> right. So there's a, there's a capitalist argument against the oil market, and that's the point. The oil companies don't have bad ESG ratings. They don't have bad because it is not about progressive values or even real environmental values. It's about saying. Because this company reduced emissions, that gets them a higher rating. Having reduced emissions rather than, and, and like you point out, ammo companies, I'll tell you ammo companies, ammo companies selling you ammunition is bad. But ammunition right. companies selling you Ukraine ammunition, selling Ukraine ammo is great. Does that make sense? Yeah, although I do want to I want to point something out here because I think it's important. Uh, I the goal here is to get the framework. You know, you consider you 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 use the analogy of this is a credit score, right? The, the hard thing is getting the that that framework out so that people get used to looking at ESG scores so that it starts to matter. That's the that's hurdle number one, and you don't you don't go out of the gate with hurdle number one, making it impossible for oil companies to get good scores, you need buy-in from big companies. So you have relatively mildly left-leaning, but not very difficult to meet standards in order to have good ESG scores because you need adoption. They're in the push the adoption phase of it right now. But once it gets adopted, this will absolutely, they will start to tighten the screws on what ESG scores 
what you need to do to, to get good ESG scores. And it will, it will become increasingly untenable and increasingly progressive. So while it's not super progressive on the, on the surface right now, it is a, it's a surveillance state tool that is used to push an agenda that is that is counter to cap as much as it might look like it's a mixed economy or some capitalism. Now it's going to be used to push the the agenda of the administrative tyrants, which is not a capitalist agenda in any way, shape or form. It much more resembles oligarchy or fascism. That's kind of the, the plan they have. If you look at stakeholder capitalism and their other plans, it's, it's this cabal of large corporations and government entities basically telling you what to do and controlling the economy and manipulating it and centrally planning it. I mean, that's what this is. So they and can't roll out. The they oil, can't say, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say on, on, on the oil company, because the S, the social aspects, if an oil company takes its all its oil wells and wraps them in a rainbow flag for pride month, pumping for pride, whatever they call it. If they do something like <laughs> that, be a marketer lead. That's, that's good. Pumping for pride. What's that Mark? What, what's that? I, Carter? You, you should be a marketing guy. That's a great pumping for pride is yes. the new slogan. Unfortunately, I've, I've worked in marketing before, but, uh, if they do that, that counts higher on their HG score than the fact that they're an oil company. So doing what is environmentally most hazardous can be offset by supporting Black Lives Matter or Pride. Does that make sense, Carter? And these companies yeah, have figured out like, how to yeah. game the system. Well, I, but I think the system is intentionally set up so that they can game it early on, because if it was impossible for large corporations to get good ESG scores, the market would absolutely reject this. So what they need right now is a score that's, that's easy for large corporations to feel good about and pat themselves on the back about and get brownie points and then force all of the people that they do business with or invest in to adopt the same framework. They need that now. And then over time, they can start uh, they can start changing it. Right. And they, and you know, there's, I guess, I guess we can talk in another 10 years and see if I'm right, but I, I would bet my house. I guarantee that their plan is not to leave it at this mild thing. Just like, just like the, you know, surveillance state in China, you know, the plan, it, it wasn't, Hey, let's put cameras everywhere because we're only going to use it. You know, we we're only going to use it for these mild things first. And then, Eventually, it will turn into we know where you are all the time, and we're gonna have yeah, you know, you're you are ten feet away from someone with COVID, so we're gonna lock up you and your whole family. I mean, it gets used for the end goal, but it doesn't start out with the. It would get rejected immediately if it started out as crazy as they want it to be. Does that make sense? It, it does, but also it's where the left is getting confused in the their intersectionality because. It's hard to, you know, what's more important since we've thrown the profitability out the window and we're not judging companies by whether they make money or not, which is traditionally what investors do, right? They traditionally say, is this stock going to make me money? But once you're starting to judge, the, where intersectionality gets confusing is what counts more, whether they're solid environmentally or pro-gay rights, or pro-Black Lives Matter. 
you, you're now weighing different things and there's no standard whatsoever for it. So who's to say that their environmental stand in the eyes of the ESG raiders is more important, in fact, than them supporting transgender kids story hour? Why is not that the most important thing since it's all arbitrary? Do you see what I'm saying, Carter? Yeah, and but and of course that that's fine. Um, but but this is, I think you're. I, I guess I'm I'm looking at this from a different perspective. You're talking about the average radical lefties, you know, confused about whether to support the trans person who, you know, wants his genitals waxed but claims to be a female, or the Muslim lady who doesn't want to wax them. I mean, you know, like it, it, it's yes, you end up in these conundrums because you're playing all these stupid lefty games. But uh, I don't. The people that are that the elite class, and I, I, you know, I'm not trying to sound conspiratorial. This is all written down. They're very overt about this. Just watch the Davos videos. I mean, look at what World Economic Forum is talking about. They're not. They're not the same radical lefty. They're not confused about that stuff. Their goal is much broader, and it is for uh, an overhaul of the socioeconomic system of the entire world. It's it's to implement a, a, a centrally managed administrative state. They, I don't think they care too much about pronouns and that kind of stuff, except except insofar as they can be used to to push their agenda and dismantle annoying Western countries that are in the way. But we got to go to Canada, not not actually. Car, don't worry, don't start packing. <laughs> but we got to go to our guest in Canada, Adam Sues, and we'll touch on a lot of these issues. But I knew you did not fail me, Carter Laren. I knew we did not prep for this. I did not tell you let's let's talk about ESGs. But I knew you know a lot about them, and I think it's an increasingly important issue that we'll be talking about on this show because it's a mechanism by which the New World Order and the WEF, it's a mechanism by which they function. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. And let's take a short break. And when we come back from Canada, Adam Sues from The Rebel, you're listening to The Backstory. back on the backstory and on the radio 105.5 fm am 1390 in washington dc joined by the great carter laren as our guest co-host today carter laren from unsafe space and coming at us next for talking about canada from the rebel the great canadian pro-liberty publication adam Sues. hey adam how you doing long time no talk how are you Ben. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while, a long time to see for sure. Happy to be here with you again. Uh, looking forward to talk to some of these. I think the last time we talked, I was parked by the roadside as truckers were uh, shutting down the area. And uh, that might be coming again soon with the way things are going. Yeah. Now, are, are you in Canada now? That's right. Yes, I am. Yeah. What province are you in? I'm in Alberta. Okay. You're still in Alberta. So the Pope was just there, correct? 
that's one of the places he, he visited. Yeah, and I was there for uh, extensive coverage access for all of that. Um, well, we've got all those reports up at popereports.com. Um, we got the opportunity to sort of ask some tough questions, have some real conversations. Um, we do like to go to bat for the Indigenous communities here. Very often you'll see uh, uh, Justin Trudeau will, will roll out people who will say what he wants on behalf of Indigenous communities. Once you actually start talking to the people, it's a very different story with their perspectives on this. But yeah, we were right there uh, as the Pope uh, attended a number of events. Well, I'm in the States in South Dakota, Sioux Falls specifically. But obviously, I won't use the word indigenous because it's a big word and I can't say indigenous, but the the native, you know, the Indians, I'll be fairly politically incorrect. We have a big Indian native population here in South Dakota and they face some of the same problems, but I am constantly bothered. I'm sure you, by the way, I called the rebel who you write for the pro-liberty Canadian publication. Is that a fair summary of how would you describe the rebel? Yeah, absolutely. We tell the other side of the story. We're very much freedom-minded, um, and we follow the truth wherever it may lead us. Unlike almost every other Canadian media outlet, barring a few independent outlets, we don't take the millions and billions of dollars to hawk government lies. Uh, we get out there and tell the truth and the real truth. We're very often the only ones not vilifying people like Pastor Arthur Pawlowski, Tamara Leach, some of these uh, freedom fighters who've been hauled away and imprisoned, they're now seeing these massive victories in courts. The courts are echoing what we've been saying all along. Meanwhile, the mainstream media echoed Justin Trudeau's sentiments and vilified all these people this whole time. So um, very much inclined as much as anything towards freedom. But as journalists, our primary responsibility is to, to seek the truth, and that's what we, we endeavor to do. Now, now we'll talk about the the Native American thing in the Pope in a few minutes. But broadly speaking, I am not as convinced that the neoliberals have the Native Americans or or Canadians, Indigenous people, best interest in mind any more than when the neoliberals talk about Black Lives Matter or talk about immigration. I'm convinced they have the best interests of Black people or Hispanic people. I'm not convinced that neoliberals, in this case, the Democrats in America, or people like Justin Trudeau and the WEF, actually have the best interests of minorities at heart. Are you convinced of that, that they really love minorities, Adam? No, I, I honestly think I hate, I think they hate them. And I think that they have an underlying bigotry of low expectations. The fact is the best ideas for you and me with respect to whatever lifestyles people may want to live. But when it comes to economy, when it comes to government, when it comes to jobs, development of, development of natural resources, all of these things, it doesn't matter if you're Indigenous, Black, White, Asian, gay, straight, that really doesn't matter. The best ideas are the best ideas for everyone. Um, what, the, what the government does, particularly here in Canada, is uses uh, often Indigenous issues or minority issues to push their own radical and progressive agendas. Um, one of the most repugnant things we see is with so many of the services being provided uh, to Indigenous or Indian communities here in Canada um, by the government, uh, they, they use it as something of a smokescreen. So what you end up happening uh, is is they make these backroom deals. Um, in, the, in the Indian community, they refer to it as the sort of cottage industry. These Ontario, Laurentian, liberal elites 
meet together, kind of broker these massive contracts, and you're seeing billions of dollars going to these single-source contracts. Uh, meanwhile, you, you still don't have clean drinking water for these native populations, um, treatment that we wouldn't tolerate in cities, big or small. Um, like some of the water on First Nations reservations in Canada is toxic, carcinogenic. Kids can't bath more than, bathe more than once a week or their skin is irritated. I've heard stories of women who uh, can dip their arms into uh, water and their arms are red, peeling. But the, the Liberal government doesn't care about them at all. And, and when Stephen Harper, a number of years back, our former uh, Prime Minister, wanted to address these issues, they basically called him racist for interfering in Indigenous affairs. When you speak to Indigenous people, Indians, whatever you'd like to call them, um, they, they have said, and I did an interview with a residential school survivor just a few days ago, they said Justin Trudeau, time and time again, is politicizing their story for personal gain, and he doesn't care about them. He cares about his own agenda. That's right. And it seems like a good way they're used is, okay, you engines, we need to stand by this pipeline for a second and act sad. And they're used, whatever pipelines are talking about being built, to kill specific pipelines. Usually, if they kill one pipeline, it's to promote another pipeline. Have you noticed that, Adam, that they're used as like mourners when pipelines are being built, but is not actually against pipelines. It's against this pipeline, and it benefits this other company over here. Have you noticed that? 100%. You, you can look at oil coming in from overseas, Saudi oil, Iranian oil, radically unethical oil. When Canada has the oil, I actually spoke with Senator Manchin about this not all that long ago. The oil is here. Canada, the United States, strong allies should be working together. The Trudeau Foundation, whatever else sort of backroom deals he's making, they're getting massive funds from these foreign entities. And lo and behold, they're attacking local pipelines. But the thing that's wild here is I'm going to mention there was a, there's actually an extremely uh, significant machete attack. Now, no one was injured, but the property was absolutely damaged. They had to evict, I believe it was the Coastal Link or TransLink pipeline um, in British Columbia. Now, the Indigenous communities there, I think it was something like 19 out of 20 councils voted unanimously in favor of it. And one council was split, but basically as a band, they came to an agreement that this should happen. So the official elected representatives and the chiefs of those actual communities, 100% pro-pipeline. The people coming in are often sort of fringe, self-proclaimed hereditary chiefs or outside activists, often not even from those reservations. Um, and then they show up in protest. We've also seen uh, Indigenous communities... Uh, and Native people coming out and blocking Justin Trudeau's bus, protesting his actions. And and the media here in this country said that he was mobbed by Indigenous fans. Um, so they're, they're lying categorically. They're, they're telling lies about these people, and they're mischaracterizing their approaches. I believe that energy sectors and oil industries are the number one employer of Indigenous people and the number one creator of wealth in Indigenous communities in Canada. They are pro-oil. Um, almost universally, aside from the ones that Justin Trudeau rolls out to sort of echo his talking points, apparently. Now, Adam Seuss, meet Carter Laren. He's our guest host today. Carter, Adam, Adam, Carter. Good to meet you. Good to meet you, Adam. Do you have any questions, Carter? Yeah, I was going to say, I've got a question as a, you know, I'm, I'm not a guy who, who, honestly, I don't pay attention a lot to the 
the indigenous news. I mean, I've, I've spoken uh, a little bit to a reporter who was reporting on the last time the Catholic Church was apologizing for something that happened 100 years ago or whatever. Um, but uh, it seems to me that the indigenous population in the mainstream media is represented as, um, in a very, uh, I'll say, uh, anachronistic way, they're, they're represented as if they want to go back and live on the land in the same way that we imagine them in movies. And we're and the, and the evil capitalists are ruining that by maybe putting in a pipeline or doing whatever they're doing. And I, my suspicion is that indigenous people are just like everyone else and they want to live and thrive in a modern world. And th this is a gross misrepresentation of what they view their own interests as, but I don't know. So I'm just going to ask you, is, is there some, you know, is there something special or different about how indigenous people want to live in Canada than everyone else? So I, I think that there would be sort of a, a, a distinction versus like in the terms of a cultural mosaic of everyone coming together, keeping their own culture alive. Um, but in other ways, sort of amalgamating within a, a modern alleged democracy. I don't know about that anymore under Justin Trudeau. Um, some of his stuff is leaning towards uh, tyranny or at least social uh, socialist dem democracy. But um, I, I think the distinction would be that there are they live effectively on isolated reservations um, where, uh, without permission, I'm not permitted to go there. Um, so I have gone there. I've had permission. I've done some of these things. Um, I'm not allowed to go there. They're allowed to go here. So that makes them in a sort of, in terms of the demographic range, different from everyone else because they're not literally generally being amalgamated into cities. Um, but 100%, there is a juvenilistic sort of, they're basing the encounter on films like Pocahontas and Avatar, not on the real world, um, where where they view Indigenous communities as sort of juvenile children who need to be babysat the entire way. And you can see what happens in any population when you implement socialistic policies, remove all initiative, and, and you basically reduce people to children. Is you, you see drug abuse, you see early death, you see uh, uh, obesity, a lack of well-being, a distrust of institutions. Like You see serious issues, whether it be in the... the Soviet Union or an indigenous reservation. So they are living in this sort of socialist hellscape. Um, while everything is paid for, the shocking thing is that the amount of money that goes towards indigenous communities should indicate that everyone has a helicopter, a nice house, and uh, uh, everything is taken care of. And then you drive through it, and it's relative squalor. Um, now, it varies greatly from chief to chief. One chief may be more ambitious bringing in new businesses and trying to ameliorate the circumstances for their people. Um, very often those chiefs will also be hard on drugs, hard on alcohol. Um, other chiefs may be more inclined towards uh, taking a paycheck. But a, a reservation that I actually just drove through today, because I was also covering our local political leadership debate, um, and it was on the way, um, they just got an, an inordinate amount of money. Um, I'm going to forget the total off the top of my head. But there are about 3,600 uh, 50 people on that reservation, the amount of money that the government just gave them to make amends for the wrongs of the past amounted to more than $400,000 for every man, woman, and child. I asked people on Sik Sik, the local native population, if they believed 
that they would see a cent of that money, and they said probably not. Um, so all this money is being pumped into these issues, and then it's disappearing. Um, very often you'll see the Chiefs getting wealthy or these massive sports flex going up while they can't get a roof replaced on a daycare or there isn't a school in the community. Um, so there are fun. Let me use, let me use a different name other than chiefs, the tribal leaders. I often heard them referred to as the tribal leaders and they come in and in South Dakota, one thing that you can do with native Americans to fund social activities is you can buy weed from them because marijuana is legal to be sold on the reservation. But Who's making that money? Is that equally distributed? Because basically giving people a license to sell weed and they right now you can only buy it on the res is basically a license to print money because people like marijuana. So certain people, the tribal leaders make a lot of money. Is that what you're saying, Adam? That certain people, but not every man, woman, child. But certain exactly. pre-select, like for instance, in the black community, the equivalent of a tribal leader would be Al Sharpton. You see in neighborhoods, black property stays the same, but Al keeps getting new cars. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's spot on. One thing you can notice, I, and I think this, I don't know if this is entirely universal, but very often the chief has family in the entourage their win and it can vary. There are some very good chiefs who are doing everything for their community. It's like a corrupt mayor versus a good mayor, except in the rest of society, there's safeguards in place to ensure they can't go completely overboard. In these communities, progressives call those sort of safeguards and metrics of accountability racist or, in, or imply that they intrude somehow. Um, so that that is sort of the thing. But definitely it's observable to see the people connected and who are more involved have nice new SUVs that I can't even afford. Meanwhile, other people literally living in absolute squalor. No, and let me run a theory by you, because you're in Canada, and I've been thinking about it. It's interesting that Canada is at the center of so much news lately. Canada, in some ways, I'm going to say, is like Ukraine in that it's it's essentially a proxy nation. It's a, a smaller not in terms of landmass, but in terms of population and political power, it's next to a big country, the United States, in the same way Ukraine is next to Russia. And it acts as a proxy, and Canada acts as a proxy for two nations, the UK and the United States. And it's at the intersection of Anglo-American power. Does that make any sense at all, Adam, in explaining why Canada shows up in the news so much lately? Yeah, I would say that it is a factor, certainly. And I mean, I would I would push back a bit on, I think under, not that Stephen Harper was perfect, but for a while there, Canada was certainly uh, beginning to emerge as a more significant power. Under Justin Trudeau, that has certainly uh, dissipated. We've lost a lot of credibility on the world stage. But I think, honestly, the reason, and I don't think that this is necessarily too much pressure from the United States, um, perhaps from some Democrats, uh, California, et cetera, but I think uh, influences from the World Economic Forum and the UN and Trudeau's just unquenchable desire to be loved and embraced by those people is ultimately why we keep winding up in the news. It's because he keeps bringing in insane sort of net zero 
um, COVID-19 mandates, uh, whatever it may be, that are completely in line with um, sort of ultra-urban, completely out-of-touch Klaus Schwab people and completely offend the senses of common, decent people, offend farmers, offend working-class people. And, and he's gotten so bad and he's, he's escalated things so dramatically that with pastor arrests, with uh, travel mandate bans, all of these things, vaccine mandates, some some still in effect in certain regards, um, he, he's, he's escalated things dramatically. Um, and I think that that is likely the biggest reason that we've been in the news lately is his attempt to push ideologies to an extent with the American system being a little more, um, there's a little more sort of a subsidiarity and the states have more control. Justin Trudeau's really attempted to force provinces uh, which are effectively our equivalent of states, into submission. Um, and that's why you're seeing people push back and fight back against his, his now, borderline tyranny. Yeah, and my impression of Canadians is generally that they're tough guys. In fact, Carter, let me make a poultry suggestion. Do you read poultry, Carter? Uh, not often. Okay. One of my favorite, Do you, are you familiar, Adam, with the Canadian poet Robert Service? You, you know him. He's, he's pretty well-known in Canada. He's a great poet, Carter. And a lot of his poems you'd like. And they're very individualistic and tough. In fact, one of my favorite poems by him is The Men That Don't Fit In. And look up that po poetry, Robert Service, The Men Who Don't Fit In. And it talks about people who are individualistic. And that's my impression because a lot of Canada is basically the, the wilderness and it's, it's not, you know, you have to be tough to survive and they get, it gets cold up there. So is that first off, do I have the right sense? When, when I hear people like Gordon Lightfoot, I mean, he's a folk singer, but the record of the Edmund Fitzgerald is a tough folk song. Adam, do I get the right sense that Canadians, by in general, are a hardy stock, shall we say? Yeah, and I would say that's a particular sentiment. The notion of grit, particularly out west, um, cowboy culture, working class culture. We very often uh, there's a, there's sort of a famous caricature of Canada where it's all these people working out west feeding a cow, and then the east is milking that cow, cashing in. Um, we pay massive equalization payments in the sum of billions of dollars to Eastern Canada and get effectively nothing back. And, and the thing is, you can look at Canada's legacy of uh, of military exploits, limited as it may be. I won't remind you of 1812, given the, that we're on an American network, but uh, you can look at the legacy even of World War II, where the relatively small number of Canadian troops often would roll through and they'd, uh, you could, they could hear the drumming in the distance and the Germans would just leave because um, the Canadians were coming. So we're known as a very hardy, very, uh, very sort of uh, inclined towards pushing back. But it's a strong juxtaposition because Canadians are also known as very polite. It's almost like that really big guy in the corner who's smiling and buying people a few drinks, but then you sort of uh, bump into him or make an impolite comment about a, a lady, and, and then you get that look and you know not to cross the line. Uh, Justin Trudeau. I'm, I'm not going near that guy, by the way, Adam. Yeah. Not going near him. Until he buys you a drink and he turns out he's okay, but uh, don't uh, don't push his gal. <laughs> I'll just buy my weed from the Indians in the corner. <laughs> I'm headed over to the corner. But 
you know, that's why uh, uh, Yukon Jack, you know, a snake bite, a shot. If I was going to have something with him, it'd be a snake bite. And Canadians like their beer. I'll say that too. Kokanee, yeah. Labatt's, Canadians like their beer, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think ours has a little more kick uh, in it generally than uh, the stuff you guys got down there. Right, and you're bragging about it. So that tells you something, Carter. Carter, what's your impression? Because he's right. The Canadians are polite, but do you do you see how? And and reason I bring this up is I think pushing the Canadians. I think the Canadian authorities lucked out during the trucker convoy. I was surprised there was not more pushback from Canadians because they were starting to. And do you think the Canadians? Being in solidarity with the Dutch farmers, is that all surprising, Adam? No. Well, and you literally saw Canadian flags being raised by the Dutch farmers. Um, this has happened in Pakistan, Australia. The Canadian flag is once again, and it's incredible. I talked to so many immigrants, uh, new arrivers, uh, second generation immigrants, whatever it may be, who are out at these freedom protests, protesting Trudeau, saying, I left this junk behind in my country to come here for freedom. I've had grown men, big guys from other countries, teary-eyed, saying seeing the Canadian flag once again as a freedom symbol across the world, I can again be proud to be Canadian. Um, so I think maybe Justin Trudeau doesn't realize it. Maybe even some of my friends who are more progressive don't realize the scope of this. But the Canadian flag is being waved around the world. And when, when, when they raise that flag, Canadians respond. Now, I, I don't know if you know this, but the 30% fertilizer cap um, that they have brought in in the Netherlands, and they are, they're working to sort of bring in right across Europe, that will see people starve. We're dealing with food shortages right now. It'll see farms shut down. They'd love to see it feeding crickets. That's what they're pushing towards. They're, Justin Trudeau, after seeing those protests and after seeing Canadians protests alongside those folks, well, he's decided meet those goals, and now we're talking about a nitrogen cap instead of a, a carbon cap, he's bringing that to Canada now, fundamentally attacking Western industries and farmers. He's going to do that here next. And what do you think the pleasure is going to be from Canadians? I, I, think, I think Canadians will once again take a stand. I think they're going to protest. I think there's a possibility that it's bigger than before because as this goes on, as the courts rule in favor of these people who are in prison for protesting and say, in fact, they're in the right, more and more people are starting to come to their senses on these issues. Um, even some mainstream media is starting to refer to these people as political prisoners. Politicians are pretending they were always on these people's side. We've seen it time and time again. Um, I think the same thing's likely to happen again, but it will probably be escalated on a higher level. But I think it likely still will remain peaceful for the time being. But Justin Trudeau wants to generate a violent response to usher in more control. While this was happening, there was no guns, there was no violence, there was no firearms uh, in, in Ottawa. It was entirely peaceful. It was bouncy castles. Um, they tried to make it seem like this was a violent uprising. Um, there's similarities to, to the January 6th situation in the United States. Obviously, this, they didn't even go into the property. They were just sort of parked there peacefully. Justin Trudeau is trying to garner a violent response from people. I think that's what he's trying to do. He, he saw the reaction to what he just did. He's like, well, we're going to ramp it up a bit and starve out the farmers and the people. Um, he will get to a point, I think, where if he keeps 
beating people down. It may escalate. But again, Canadians, very peaceful, very peace-loving. Um, and the sentiment from the people involved in this is let's remain peaceful. Let's not sink to that level. And, and hopefully that's but, the case. But our, Adam, you, I, I, I think you're making a point that Canadians are peaceful, but also you can only push them so far. And I'll tell you this, Canadian authorities, watch out. If you see a Canadian throw his gloves down, because that's what they do in hockey. They throw the gloves down and then they start punching. Have you noticed that, Adam? Oh, 100%. And you know what? There's another point that you speak to at length. Forgive me if you mention hockey to a Canadian. He's going to talk. We just had two players, all-star, superstar players, leave our team here in Calgary. And they left for worse contracts in cities that aren't good at hockey and that don't particularly care at hockey necessarily, about hockey necessarily. And no one could quite figure it out. And a bunch of other players came out saying they actually want to get the hell away from COVID restrictions, from lockdowns, from the uncertainty, from the lack of access to family. So this is affecting, like this totalitarian trend is affecting every scope of life, whether it's superstar athletes or farmers. Um, But if you mess with hockey and you mess with our beer, you're probably going to find yourself in a little bit of trouble. Right. And watch out with them throwing ninja stars that are actually back bacon. If they throw a ninja star and you examine it and it's Canadian bacon, don't be surprised. Now, Carter Laren, great job guest hosting, co-hosting today, and great conversation. Do you have any final questions or thoughts for Adam Seuss in Canada? Uh, well, look, I mean, the way that you're describing Canada, Adam, it reminds me of California in many ways. I mean, there's a lot of rural parts where they're they're more conservative, but it's being controlled by the most radical urban areas. And, you know, the, the question that I've got for all over the world, you see the same thing in the Netherlands, you see the same thing in many parts of the U.S. The question is, uh, you know, are the urban people or sorry, are the, the rural people who are actually providing the food and doing a lot of the difficult labor? Uh, are they going to prevail or are they going to be subdued by uh, panty-waisted tyrants like Justin Trudeau? I, I don't know. I hope they prevail. Uh, but it is heartening to see uh, the reaction of the farmers in the Netherlands and uh, the reaction in Canada. You know, I'd love for your thoughts. I mean, how, how, far, how far can they be pushed? Yeah, you know, they, they ultimately will prevail because uh, the farmers can survive without Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau can't survive without the farmers. Um, That's that's the core of it. They can feed themselves on their own farms. They're self-sustained. They can survive. Um, So they're not particularly worried about that. They're they're worried about their families. They're worried about other Canadians. Um, So, But we are seeing in the courts of law victories on so many of these fronts. There was a tense point, even sort of among mainstream legal minds, that if a number of these rulings went the wrong way, it could have spelt serious trouble because the politicians overstepped, the prosecution overstepped, and then the last test was, were these higher level of courts, whether it be Court of Appeals, Supreme Courts, also going to cave? So far, it's not perfect, the victories yet. We've seen overwhelming trends towards judicial sort of propriety, towards doing the right thing, towards upholding the letter of the law. Now, Will those checks and balances be sufficient to hold Justin Trudeau at bay? That remains to be seen. But if things escalate, the farmers will prevail. And I can tell you the separatist sentiment in Western Canada, particularly Alberta, is higher than Quebec, which is the French-speaking province. They've had several... Now, now, now we're out, uh, out of time for the show. Adam Seuss, great appearance, eh? Uh, I speak Canadian to him. 
so understand me, Carter. And Carter, great job, co-guest hosting, and great appearance by Scott Ritter. Fantastic show today. We are your perch on which you can watch the world at revolution. Pay attention to what's happening in the world and don't get fooled by either narrative. This is Lee Stranahan. You've been listening to The Backstory.